This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. And all that jazz. Welcome to the artists. As Godard said, you don't make a movie, the movie makes you. In our movie-making profession, the workings of Murphy's Law is always at its best. In these candid conversations, we unravel those challenges that define the makers in the movie-making business. Hope these chats will inspire and elevate you to keep fighting for your dreams, but with a mode of reality check on it. I'm your host, Suchita, and this podcast is brought to you by Metaphysical Lab. Enjoy the show. Hi guys, welcome to the episode 39th of our podcast. Yes, we're about to touch uh, 40 episodes uh, by next week. That's exciting. We have been doing this since the past one year. And so thank you for all your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for contacting, connecting, telling about yourself. Um, I just want to begin by apologizing. Uh, in the last episode, I had mentioned that that this week we will release this episode which is about consciousness and creativity with this uh, very esteemed guest uh, uh, who has been part of the Deepak Chopra Foundation and also uh, part of the Government of India Science and Innovation uh, Center. But uh, unfortunately, we've not been able to complete uh, the post on the episode. It's a very long episode and uh, so we just thought we'll take some more time, uh, another week to work on it. Um, also we just uh, got a query from one of the listeners saying that you know the moment he sees an episode beyond 30 minutes it just frightens him and he just puts it in his to-do list and that sort of never comes you know so we have been also debating on the length of the episode but uh, frankly speaking i think uh, podcasts are meant to be long and they're meant to be detailed and you know the whole effort is to get uh, as much um, as you can out of your guests your esteemed guests so so i think i think uh, i think uh, the the time limit uh, definitely does not justify the podcast uh, i also happen to listen to uh, of course i listen to other podcasts as well and i listen to the joy rogan podcast the most recent one uh, with elon musk and it was it's a two hour long podcast and i sort of thoroughly enjoyed it um, it also actually gives you sort of amount of patience to you know listen uh, to the podcast getting away from that those quick videos that we are getting used to watch uh, every day in our lives so um but yes we are still debating uh, about the length of the podcast um so uh, we're going to be getting this episode on consciousness and creativity next week and not this week so that brings us to the guest of this week folks today we have with us jim colmar so jim is a film programmer he's a writer who from 2009 to 2020 curated features for south by southwest uh, film festival which is a popular film festival in austin texas and his primary interest is international films with a particular focus on latin american caribbean and latinx films and since 2010 he curated the south by southwest global section for international films and he also served as a member of the inaugural selection committee for festival international de cine tulum and i hope i'm pronouncing that right Jim is also a contributing writer for Ambulante Film Festival in Mexico and has served on juries, panels and committees at events including the Bogota Audiovisual Market, the Con Next, the CPH Docs, 
Docker with Docs DF, IDFA, IFF Panama, Krakow Film Festival, New Horizons and Ventana Sur. And in case anything I pronounce wrong, I'm really apologetic about it. So guys, let's go and chat with the amazing Jim Colmar. Hi Jim, welcome to a podcast, The Artist. Thank you for joining us from Austin. And how is it going there right now? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's good. Um, currently, uh, we're on lockdown, oh <laughs> so my to God. speak, okay. like everyone else. Uh, but it, actually, they are starting to open up Texas, so mm-hmm. it's a strange transitional time. But yeah, I'm I'm feeling pretty good. Jim, tell me about the festival that you uh, have been a part of, uh, South by Southwest. And recently, the festival moved to Amazon Prime. Uh, all the films that you guys curated and selected. Do you see that trend emerging for the rest of the year for the festivals? Um, I mean, I think that in in the current situation, it, it has to to an extent. But one mm-hmm. thing, I mean, to that point, uh, so the way that it worked with South by Southwest was that um, it was a selection of films from the program. It wasn't the entire program. So basically, it was an interesting case because South by was so early in this whole process i mean when, when the festival was uh when the event was cancelled as a live event mm-hmm. it was really it was really at the very beginning of this whole strange period of events being cancelled and restructured and migrating online mm-hmm. so for south by it was you know it was very much like what now like there was no model in place there was no there were no precursors in in, in the festival world um so yeah it was really an act of uh it was about trying to do something for the filmmakers because you know it was very clear that the the event was as much as it was difficult for everyone involved in the running of the event and programming it it was really the filmmakers who had suddenly lost this valuable platform so i think that's as the driving force of many of these festivals in fact most of these festivals mm-hmm. i think i think it has to find some way to accommodate them and online is the way that people are watching things at the moment yeah so do you, do you think that's that's uh, equally beneficial for a filmmaker? I mean, of course, uh, you don't have a choice, but then still, of course, it makes a does it make a, a difference when your film gets online versus when it's actually there? Well, it's a bit of a funny thing. I mean, to an extent, you'd have to ask the filmmakers that question mm-hmm. because everyone's experience is going to be different. But mm. w- you know, ordinarily, having your let's take take a hypothetical case that your film is it's your first film. South by Southwest is your is your world premiere, and you're just you're gearing up to show it to an, to an audience at the mm-hmm. festival. Mm-hmm. You would expect your screening to have um, you know buyers, sales agents, other festival programmers, other filmmakers, um, and of course the general audience. So you would you would you would be able to work that angle, and you would be able to know that ahead of time, and and you know accommodate it with your festival strategy. Now you know you have a potential audience of. I suppose theoretically millions of people. Yeah. But the you know, but the reality is that having those people in that room in one space does create a certain energy. It creates, you know, that that sort of elusive idea of buzz, which does tend to be lost in an online experience. But you you're reaching more people. It's to, to be honest, it's not something I can lock down to like one concrete notion of what's what's better and what's not, because we're all still just experimenting with these ideas. And I think what's really going to happen is we have to account as programmers for the idea of this being a major paradigm shift for everyone. 
Yeah. So it's gonna it's gonna change things, and a lot of people will have will have very positive experiences as a result of that. It's just it's really too early to tell, I think. Sure. And Jim, as a programmer and a curator, when you select the films, like for example, now you know that the physical festival is not happening, and you decide to select mm-hmm. the films only for online festivals. Do you think that your strategy and your taste of films will change because of that? Well, I mean, there's the two questions. My taste won't change. No, mm. our tastes won't won't change. Mm. Um, I would think that, and again, I want to speak generally about this rather than specifically about South by. But I think what's going to happen is events that do migrate online as a sort of ongoing concern mm-hmm. would have to reflect their profile as a festival as it already is. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to make radical adaptations to taste because. You've, you've made your name and established your character as a festival and, and you know why people go to your event, why would you change that for an online audience? Mm. But having said that, you know, the films themselves are, are going to be made with, well, let's, let's be speculative about this. Mm. The films may be made with the idea of a different kind of audience in mind. Mm. We, it, it's totally speculation and to be honest, I think what's actually going to happen is filmmakers will continue to make the films they've always made. And the lines are blurring anyway. I mean, you know, a lot of the Netflix, Amazon Prime type films that are shown at festivals, they're obviously designed for home viewing. I mean, ultimately, those films may have a festival release. They may have even a brief theatrical run, but they're going to end up online on a, on a, on a smaller screen. So I think I don't see the actual films themselves or our personal taste changing Hardly at all, actually. And uh, Jim, you have been curating the global section for international films. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of stories do you see emerging uh, from uh, different uh, continents? You know, it's interesting because a lot of the films at, at a small scale, at a small level, it, they're intimate films a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And they're very sort of, if they're not actually intimate stories, they're, they're intimate productions and on a, on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe working with a smaller crew, lower budget, um, I think that's, you know, that's the, those are the kinds of filmmakers that gravitate towards South by Southwest in any case and the mm-hmm. films that we gravitate towards. Yes. In terms of how this is going to work in other countries, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I was talking to some filmmakers a few weeks ago about this and they were at the very sort of, you know, mid-development, pre-production stage of their film. Mm-hmm. And they're already looking to adapt for the idea that they're not going to be able to work on the same scale. So it's going to change the nature of production without mm-hmm. doubt. Sure. It strikes me that the documentaries in particular are going to, might have a hard time because the idea of having that kind of access is, you know, it's, it's tough. That, that's, you either have the access or you don't. Um, but I think the nature of intimate storytelling, again, it's going to remain the same. What might change is the... Um, you know, for example, if, if you're making a broad human story, you may have to reassess your idea of a location or, you know, what kind of set you're going to use, that kind of thing. But And, and obviously, mm. people who have had their life experiences informed by the nature of the pandemic, that's going to affect the kind of storytelling, the, the stories they're telling. And over the, over the past uh, decade that you have been curating, Jim, uh, mm-hmm. Have you seen how have you seen the stories evolve? Do you, have you seen any changes in the kind of story, stories being selected or the way they are being told? One of the curious things about festivals is that you find that 
as as you're as you become more and more recognised for a certain kind of film, mm. the filmmakers you see, or the filmmakers you receive through the course of open submissions, tend to reflect the sensibility of the festival. So, for example, I, you know, I, I forget the name of the film, but I remember that uh, some years ago we had a film that was positioned as the first um, Pakistani mumblecore film, mm-hmm. and that was a, that was at a time where you know mumblecore was, isn't the word that's used so often anymore, but. It, it was it was very much it was very clear that st- that story was informed by our you know, quote unquote our films you know the, the sort of profile we were looking for so I think as a festival you tend to get films that reflect your own taste anyway because they, there's like a feedback loop where filmmakers are looking to sh- show the kinds of films that they're interested in mm-hmm. and if they look to us for those films mm-hmm. then you will see those reflected what I think tends to happen instead is you find that films come in waves. So, for example, one year we had a number of films that were small-scale uh, time travel films, for example, or, you know, science fiction. Like, th- these kinds of things ebb and flow, and because and the, there are certain trends that, that, that rise and fall, um, and the films definitely do reflect that. Mm. I think there's a little more... Um, I, I don't want to say ambition, because the storytelling is always ambitious, but mm. in, t- in terms of the... Um, the reach of the film, the accessibility, the, the scale of the film. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a film like um, Number 37, uh, a South African film a couple of years ago, which was really very, you know, low budget and, you know, first time feature film director, but really quite slick and had a really strong mainstream appeal. And it was really very well done. But But you could still make the case that it was done in the sort of, you know, punkish DIY spirit that a lot of our films have. But... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, funnily enough, her, you know she's she's just completed a series. For the the filmmaker Nosifo has completed a series for Netflix. So it, it's it, it's kind of interesting how everyone is starting from the same place. Everyone mm-hmm. is starting from similar means, but the stories can now expand in radically different ways with much broader horizons because people are looking bigger and bigger to tell the kinds of stories that they want to tell. Sure. So number thirty-seven. Besides number thirty-seven, yeah, yes. and any other any other film that uh, you would like to take as an example, and what is that specific things that struck you while you were you watching these films? Well, we're looking for new voices mm-hmm. always. We're looking and we're looking for new ways of telling stories. So anything that does that in a and that can be anything from a sort of it's it's quite hard to pin down sometimes. Like some things just are naturally have a natural visual experimentalism, for example, like they just have an unusual look or there's something particularly refined about them or, or it can be something that's quite high concept or tackling an issue that's, you know, underrepresented in general or underrepresented in coming from a certain region. That's mm-hmm. really important. If, if we feel we're seeing something brand new, mm-hmm. that's exciting. And, that, and that's actually, it's more exciting to me to see something that's trying something new, even mm-hmm. if it isn't necessarily the most success, uh, successful rendition of that idea, than it is to see the same ideas done again. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> However well that's done, we're looking for ambition and you know risk-taking. Sure. Jim, I've always uh, sort of asked this question, even one of the earlier podcasts, I was asking to one of the uh, programmers and curators that why is it so difficult to find the selected films suppose five years ago <laughs> you know I've seen a film and I want to watch that film now you know again I never <laughs> find it anywhere you know well I mean for one thing the, the 
it's become harder because the streaming platforms have fragmented for one thing. Like there's, there are so many different ways you can see a film now and everyone's in looking for different content that yeah. in a sense, it's like this, it's such a mass of, of titles out there that it's, it's just things just kind of fall by the wayside. But also it's always been hard to get a film out there. There are films, I mean, throughout the entire history of cinema, that's, that's been the case for, <laughs> for any number of reasons. And I mean, now we're in the weird situation where, a film that you expected to always be able to watch suddenly falls off the radar because of rights issues or, you know, for whatever reason, streaming platform A had, had that film for five years and the, and, and the rights expire and it's just gone. It just goes out into the ether. And, and then, of course, you can have situations where it's still available, but it's not, it doesn't have the marketing clout of Netflix or Amazon Prime, so it's, it's just not necessarily right there in front of you. But, yeah, I mean... I was thinking about this question because there are films that only that were only available in, in a physical medium. So when you have a, you know, when video rental stores, for example, are, are closing in droves, like one of Austin's most beloved Vulcan video closed recently. Mm-hmm. And there were films in, in that place that I'd never seen anywhere. Like it was, it was pretty remarkable. Even online, these films are incredible. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> let's call them via unofficial platforms. <laughs> they can be, they yeah. can be hard to find. You know, maybe that one VHS copy yeah. is the only way of watching that film. And there is no easy answer. But I would also say that it doesn't fall to the, it's not the responsibility of festivals to make sure the films are viewable in perpetuity. Like that comes down to um, distributors and, yes. and even the filmmakers themselves sometimes. Like they may wish to withhold that film. Yes. I, yes. I, I can think of, I've seen films where, I know that's not their first feature film. I know they have a first feature film somewhere else, but they've removed it from circulation because they don't want to draw attention to it because that's not their their main statement as an artist. So maybe they've just chosen to do that for personal reasons. But it's also it's also strange, Jim, because you know these films do so well at the festivals. And mm-hmm. why isn't a mainstream platform like an Amazon or a Netflix giving space to these films? Uh, uh, do you think there is a monetary issue there? Of course, movie is there, but then movies again, you see new films and uh, you know certain selected curated work. But there are a lot of good work which is not out there. Some three or four years ago, mm. Amazon actually picked up a number of films from the festival and made them available on Prime, and I believe they're still there. In fact, I mm. mean, it, 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 which was a, a very high proportion of the films that were at the festival that year. So I think they are doing it. I think. The problem becomes with with the large mainstream platforms like Netflix and Amazon. Mm. There's like wonderful work on there, like in, incredible independent cinema, international cinema, documentary, but they don't necessarily promote them the same way as they used to. Mm. Like the, mm. the the content, the content stream is so voluminous that it's just hard for these voluminous. films to be noticed, mm. and and they need and they need to be they need to be viable for the platform. Like the platform needs to have a reason to show those films. Mm-hmm. But I would also point out that, you know, there's movie of co- movie, of course, and Fandor. There are yes. other smaller um, niche platforms as well. I mean, there's like Grasshopper Films has one, for example. And there, there, there are lots of different ways that these films can find an outlet. It's just, it just requires more of the casual viewer, I think. And unfortunately, casual viewers are... Well, yes. they're casual. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're not necessarily interested in hunting things down. 
where festivals can serve is that you know if you think of festivals as a, as a recommendation engine let's say yeah festivals can serve as, as an opportunity for for viewers to think right what's available what's what's out there i mean we used to do oh, still do actually south by southwest does a regular um a blog blog post about films that we've shown that are in circulation and that's not limited to recent films that's films that go back a few years so there are ways to find them but i, th- I think for these platforms uh, they're doing what they can within the confines of what's required of them you know in uh, in terms of what's commercial you know, what they, what they're trying to make available for their viewers it's not a case that they just pick up everything and hope for the best it's it's difficult because it it requires those platforms to then act as active scouts which which they do to be fair um but it it gets trickier and trickier there's there's too much there's just too much content out there and not content. enough mm. platforms mm. yeah it's it's very weird because the casual viewer is mostly interested in money heist you know and things like that which <laughs> then become popular and then the filmmaker you know which is actually a festival filmmaker if i may call that you know gets Uh-huh. get to rethink about the content that they are creating which is why i always sort of think about this jim is that you know i saw a filmmaker's work 5 years back and i thought he was so fabulous or she was so fabulous but then i never get to see a second film of theirs i mean i don't know the well, disappear they, yeah well making that second film is incredibly tricky for one thing mm-hmm. um yeah. it's a bit of a, it's a weird sort of ambiguous area for for you know younger filmmakers and mm. first time filmmakers because they make their first film by sheer force of will because they had to yes. nobody makes their first feature film because they want to make money you know yes. they they do it to make it and and once that's done and once they've made the film it's out there in the world it's it's you know it's on the festival circuit or you know whatever it's mm. that second film is really tough and you, and you also have to think like how do once a filmmaker's actually developed you know written developed financed produced and released the film that's a multi-year process and and mm-hmm. i i think you know speaking personally like i don't, I don't want to reflect the festival mm-hmm. people yes. themselves but yes. i actually think um mental health and psychological emotional well-being is a big part of this mm-hmm. making a film is draining like yes. it's, it's like incredibly draining yeah and i think it's one of those things that needs to be tended to mm-hmm. and rushing from one film to another for you know yeah. for years decades at a time is exhausting and and i i think that has to be part of it like burnout is a real thing um but then you've also got to talk think about things like financing like that film's got to be paid for and perhaps it's it makes more sense for that filmmaker to do something less high profile to pay the bills or simply to remain sane like it, it, it's yeah. an important it's an important next step it's interesting that you mentioned you know a show like money heist because shows like that I mean, not that one in particular but shows of that kind sort of prestige television they they look to the independent filmmaker world to find people who can help them with those who can you know direct those projects for them yeah or or in many cases end up being showrunners that's a that's a very common thing too i mean you think about an hour of television that's that's pretty damn close to making a feature film that's a lot of time a lot of energy a lot of investment and you know a filmmaker finds himself in a situation where they've made their first film and now they they 
there's a clamor to have their next project be for television or whatever. Yeah. They they go where their heart and bank account tells them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who can blame them for that, really? It's difficult. Yeah, because I was sort of in my earlier podcast episodes, I asked a lot of filmmakers, you know, where do I watch your film? And they said, we mm. don't know. You know, like, we, we don't know where you can watch <laughs> them, you know. So I got a private link, a Vimeo link, but I got that, but uh-huh. whatever, you know, other people want to watch it. And um, so, 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 you know, like Rotterdam has its own mm-hmm. platform. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see, Jim, that as a trend that should or possibly could emerge in the future where festivals have their own streaming possibilities? Well, the, the challenge of that is it's very hard to do well. Like, it's mm-hmm. one thing to launch it as a platform and say, here, here are some of our films, but actually doing it well and marketing it and making it viable is is extremely difficult and it's not so that south by southwest is ever you know considered with any any real seriousness because because of that mm-hmm. i also i also feel like it's not really the job of festivals it, mm. it's it's kind of like saying do you think that during you know milan fashion week those designers are then responsible for having their clothes out there in the world <laughs> hitting shelves because they, they've done their job is to celebrate them at that first instance and you want to support a film in its life as much as you possibly can but your main role as a festival is is to showcase the film and kind of give it your you're recommending the films essentially sort of give it that stamp and say hey this film is we, we think you should pay attention to this we want you to pay attention to this filmmaker and i think that's the job of festivals and you know there's there's a lot more to it than that but we couldn't do that job as well as as a, pa- a platform like Mubi could. We just we just can't. Yes. But but you know, Mubi isn't running a, a large film festival. It's, it's just a question of what do you do best and what how can you best serve the filmmakers. I also want to revisit something. Just thinking about it, mm. when you talk about the availability of films and how can we see them, I think what's important is the, is the filmmakers themselves. Like oh, the, yes. the, the 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 films are obviously enormously important and stand alone as, as, as works in their own right. But hmm. filmmakers, the whole thing is, is the idea that you're, you're, you're celebrating a certain talent and, you, and you're, you're helping to nurture that talent. Because once that filmmaker's made that film, it's on to the next one and it becomes a, a part of their body of work. But they're continuing to work. It, it doesn't begin and end with that one film, that, that one or that that group of festivals so i think that's quite important to keep into consideration too is it's the filmmakers that are really the ones who are continuing the legacy mm, absolutely i think i think i think that's a great point that filmmakers should themselves make an effort to make their film available for the audience to watch it well 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 that but also also their responsibility is to, to make the next film or, or the next project whatever that might be yeah. like we we you could spend years in a rabbit hole of trying to get your film out there in the world. And in that time, you could be working on new projects and you know, mm. nurturing new collaborations. I, I think, and also it's not always the filmmaker's immediate responsibility to put the film out there in the world. Mm. Definitely that DIY sensibility has become more important in the wake of you know, how streaming has affected things. Uh, mm. It's not quite as simple as you know booking a series of cinemas anymore. Mm. Having said that, that is still also an option. Like filmmakers and and uh, and distributors are still doing that. That's you know we, we talk about the platforms as being dominant, and of course that's how most people watch their films now. But 
putting your film in a theater, I think is still a very real important part of the process. And I don't think that's going to disappear anytime soon. Even in the wake of a pandemic, the theaters will come back. I'm, I'm confident about that. Yeah, absolutely. Jim, do you see any change in the kind of stories being selected to be told after post-COVID? <laughs> I think it's inevitable. <laughs> you, know you know what I was thinking about? Like, mm. I was thinking about um, TikTok mm. and how that's, ex- how that's exploded. And, you know, I'm too old to be on TikTok. <laughs> but I, but I, I see aspects of it. And, you know, I have these, I have these two young nieces and mm. they're sort of starting to toy with ideas around... Uh, how they use um, moving images. And I think what is going to happen is people are sort of developing a new vocabulary. TikTok is fascinating to me. I mean, (laughs) you know, whatever your thoughts about the platform itself, the the creativity is astonishing. Like (laughs) extremely young people who aren't, aren't sitting there thinking, right, it's time for me to make my statement, make my video. How am I going to do that? (laughs) They're they're just grabbing their phones and doing it. So I, I think... My hope is that there'll be a spontaneity of the kind that you were seeing, you know, in the French New Wave or Dogma 95, that kind of spirit of, Mm. okay, we're going to strip this down and do this simply and spontaneously and tell this story or, you know, paint this picture, you know, like that that sort of idea that a thing has to be made in the immediate, immediately and in the immediate surroundings. I mean, you're going to see a lot of things that are set in one place, I think, is... Very unlikely. I would like to see people being, you know, making Fassbender-style, mm. elaborate, set-based <laughs> theatrical mm. projects that take place in their living rooms, you know? Like, mm. I think that's got a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the nature of, of technology is going to affect things too. Like, you can create green screen work w- within your own home, for example. Yeah. Um, but I also think, you know... The, the, the way you tell stories about human emotions and human interaction, those aren't constrained by a, a, a physical boundary like a pandemic. Those stories still need to be told. Yes. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like how in the wake of World War II, people were making films to help them process that. But at the same time, you had films like A Matter of Life and Death, which were not explicitly about the experience, but were connective moments with it, within that, within the context of a war that could take people out of it. You know, there's that sense of that need for escapism, I think is also something that you could see happening. It's it's interesting. I I think it's fascinating because I think creative people, filmmakers especially, have always been able to thrive in a, in a, within strictures. And if that happens to be a pandemic, (laughs) then so be it. You know, Jim, I'm, I'm constantly wondering what if the next coming years all we see is content related to COVID from advertising yeah. films to short films to feature films. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> God, I'm worried about that too. <laughs> I'm very worried about that. Because all How, I see yeah. is everyone is shooting in their houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you do have that problem. You, you're going to have a, like a homogenous output. You know, that, yeah. that there is that potential. I think what's interesting is I've been following a lot of um, filmmakers online talking about the, how do they make these films about COVID. So let, let's take that as an example. The films that explicitly address the, the, what's happening, mm. you know, and that's got obviously huge layers from, you know, medical, you know, the medical industry in the U.S. to corruption, 
to social interaction, all these different themes that are emerging out of this because it's it is such a total situation. Yes. Um, but what's been encouraging is I'm seeing people talk about things like the ethics of how you make those films, and you know what's what's going to change in terms of how you connect. I, I guess I'm talking specifically about documentary filmmakers. Sure. What's going to change about how you connect with people and how can we do that ethically and how do we avoid giving the appearance of exploitation and opportunism? Like, what what do we do? How do we how do we remain creative and still tell those stories? There's just huge discussion taking place, and I think. If we can take one important lesson from this, it's that the need for introspection and reassessing the paradigms is so incredibly important now because things aren't going to go back to normal. It, it's a, there is no normal. It, it, normal's gone. We've got. We've got. Yes. Yes. It's, it's totally. a buzzword, but the, the new normal is, is a real thing. So filmmakers have to be cognizant of that because you could burn out very easily by telling endless stories about COVID. But at the same time, we survived endless films about 9-11, about the Bush administration, <laughs> yes. about the Vietnam War. Like, mm. it's, it's not like, it's kind of like a flexing of the collective creative intellectual muscles where we're, we're working through things together as a culture. And there's a sort of tacit calibration that takes place between audiences and makers, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, the, the purse string holders, let's call them. There's a balance to be struck. So, yeah, I'm a little worried about homogenous content, but I also think that we're, what, two, two and a half months into this now? Three, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for now, this is our, this is our normal currently. Yes. So this is, this is the milieu we have to work in as, as, as creative people and as, and, as, and as people. So it'll balance, it, there's a balance to be struck but it's, yeah, but, it's but, hard not but, but Jim the worst part is everyone has a camera now which was not there during <laughs> Vietnam yeah, yeah. War and 9-11 everyone has a camera now so <laughs> that's that's true well yeah that's true you say that but but think about the the the, the sheer amount of material that was generated after something like 9-11 like it was mm -hmm. a huge amount of content that had to be grappled with and had to be shaped into something um, digestible. Hmm. So I, I think what's happened, the big difference now is that the way that people are putting their work out there is, is creative in a very different way. And I guess you could, you could look to things like Snapchat as being, <laughs> let's call them yeah. pioneers. Yeah. Um, because the platform is not creating the content. It's, it's just a means of, means of distribution. I think having the means of production in the hands of everyone is ultimately ultimately to the good of, of the culture at large because people who previously didn't have access to the equipment they needed to tell their stories, they now have access. And that, that brings me to another point, which is that who is, who, is, who is positioned to tell those stories? Like people from communities telling their own stories is, not, is more possible than it ever was. You know, they, they can seize the means of production and, and create that work themselves now. It, it doesn't require an outsider or an interloper, however well-meaning and however creative, to tell their story on their behalf. They can actually directly tell those stories. My hope is that those films will have this kind of immediacy that is demanded by having to do it, like, right now and, and put it out there immediately. So I, I, think, I think that's pretty exciting. I think that's a really... That's a really valuable thing we can take from this is who's telling the stories because now they have no choice but to tell them themselves.
Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And Jim, do you think that uh, uh, I'm asking a perspective of a programmer, curator, a film person, is mm-hmm. that when now filmmakers make their film, uh, like a script that was already written, but it's getting into production next year, uh, <laughs> do, you, do you think that they should keep that in mind that we have gone through COVID or we are going through COVID and while in terms of the content... And do you as a programmer, curator, would view that while you're watching that film in, made in 2021? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think films that are already written will inevitably have to adapt. But mm. the, main con- the main concern, and, and again, I, I've spoken to a lot of filmmakers about this, mm. is that we just, even now, like, I mean, for example, Texas has taken quite decisive action mm. in terms of, op- quote, unquote, opening up the state's whether or not you think that's a good idea is another conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but that aside, everyone else, everyone is in a state of uncertainty right now. Mm-hmm. So policymakers are trying to establish some sense of a timeline, but we just don't know. I mean, you know, you, you can't, it's just impossible to plan. So I think what, what's going to happen is filmmakers will just have to learn to be more nimble and, and more adaptable. Like maybe... I, I'll speak personally. I, I mm. feel like there's been a tendency in recent years for stories to become a little conservative with a small C. Like, you know, they're, they're telling these stories that are interesting and personal, but structurally they're following a pretty familiar playbook. Mm-hmm. Well, my hope is that they won't be able to do that anymore because the stories are just too wild and unpredictable because we telling them is going to be such a difficult process and getting that vision on screen is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. I think, I think what's not really going to change is that, you know, and even in terms of how we as programmers consider the work is that personal stamp that you put on a film as a filmmaker is mm-hmm. it's your stamp within, within the means that you had available. Yeah. And, yeah, this is a total and a very total situation where the entire world seems to be shut down. But that's the context we're working in, and 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 that's it's going to define how the films are made. I don't know if it's necessarily going to define how people scrutinize themselves as 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 individuals, as humans. Because if you think about our needs, are, are made very clear in this situation. Like our emotional needs, you know, the yeah. need for touch, the need for interaction. You know, how how do you communicate with people? How do you mm. demonstrate your connection with people? I think maybe we might spin off into slightly more abstract philosophical realms. And I and I don't know that worrying about whether you have access to that soundstage in a year's time is necessarily going to stop that process. Mm-hmm. And it certainly won't change how we view the film. We watch, you know, a South by Fortune as, as many, as most large festivals in, in the sense that we have this influx of material that just simply pours in. It's coming in and coming in and, mm. you know, thousands and thousands of films are just sent to us. And, yes. and, and we, have, we have the privilege and luxury of going through those films and seeing what people are working on. That's a different process to actually going out and actively curating at festivals or by, you know, by direct communication with filmmakers or sales agents or whatever, like that's a little different. That's the curatorial aspect of, of a large scale submission process. 
mm-hmm. is almost like a, in, at least in the initial stages, is almost sheer force of will. You're going through things and seeing what emerges. So the number one thing we're looking for is just new voices and new stories, however that appears and whatever the context of those stories was. So I, I can't see that dramatically changing. Um, it's an interesting question, though. I mean, we, we, mm. we're as uncertain as the filmmakers are, frankly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jim, you have been curating for 10 years now, like programming, curating for 10 years. Uh, post the digital revolution, which, which, I, which I think is like the last couple of years, three years, mm-hmm. where it's just boom, you know, like mm-hmm. everybody's talking TikTok and this and that, which was not there like three years back. The kind of films and the quantity of films must be, must be much less than what you were getting in the last three I'm years. Cu- I'm curious to know why you think that's the case because I, th- I don't think that's true. But no, I'm, I'm b- because because uh, uh, digital has given access to a lot of uh, filmmakers to make the film easily, which perhaps was not there say five years back. You, you're saying there are, there are fewer films coming in as a result of that. Uh, earlier like five to six years back, suppose you were getting like two thousand films. Now you must be getting oh, some seven thousand films. For example, that's interesting. So I, you know, without without giving giving away numbers, yeah, the, the the number of submissions that South by was receiving went up incrementally year after year, and it was it was it was definitely an increase. Like year on year, there was an increase every single year. Yes, I don't think that the digital revolution, so to speak, accelerated that dramatically. I, I think. Well, I mean, going back to what we said earlier about the means of production, I, I, I think that's becoming more and more available for, wow, I mean, you're talking about the early 90s with, with mm-hmm. the, the first, the first, you know, yeah. <laughs> quote-unquote professional-grade consumer cameras were, yeah. you know, we're talking early 90s. And even before that, you know, yeah. Godard, for example, has long been an experimentalist working with VHS or whatever he had available. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that the digital revolution has dramatically affected that. I, mm-hmm. I think in terms of the number of films being made, yes, it's more and more, more films are being made than ever before. Like it's getting, it's getting crazy. I, I've, I've never quite believed this idea that mm-hmm. anyone can grab a camera. Like it's, everyone has access to it because, you know, if you're <laughs> working class yeah. people can't afford to just go out and buy a camera, you know, that, that yes. was, that was always a hindrance. That's less true now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's been an explosion in actual content being made. It depends. There's, there's the films being made and there's the films being sent to film festivals. Those are, those are different things. Sure, year on year, on year, there are more and more films being submitted. But I, I think the number of films being made is, is escalating much faster than the number of films being submitted to festivals. Awesome. And do, do, do you think that, uh, you know, festivals, uh, just asking uh, as, you know, as a film, uh, a film person and not as a program on the film, uh, do you think festivals should put a cap on the submissions? No, I, no, mm-hmm. I don't. I think mm-hmm. that, I don't think that would make any mm-hmm. sense. I mean, there's a, there's a, mm-hmm. For one thing, there's a financial imperative. Yes. And for another thing, there's, there's, you want to find these films. I mean, you've got to think of it in terms of, you know, if you're in the middle of nowhere in some small town, you've made a film and you have internet access, you know this festival exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the, the, you know, we're, we're really interested in those people. I mean, I would, I would never want to prevent someone like that from submitting their film. Like, there's, there's no, 
there would be no advantage to us putting a cap on things. Plus, like I say, I mean, the way that films have been submitted to us, I mean, it's it's not like doubling year after year. It's it's a, it's a slow, steady increase. It's not it's not an unmanageable amount. It's I mean, yes, it's a deluge, and we we definitely struggle to make sure everything's covered and, like you said, stay sane as filmmakers. Um, but that's it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, it, it's. It's, we've got to manage those numbers. It's it's important. Absolutely. I hope it doesn't become a deluge in 2021, you know, post the COVID as we come out of it. Oh, so Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. It's 2022 that we should be really worried about. <laughs> All right. Sure. Jim, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, thank you for that great knowledge, conversation, experience that you shared with us. And, You're welcome. Um, thank you. I hope you have a great day. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation and the knowledge and experience that Jim shared with us to tell us what you think about it. We also have a freshly brewed Instagram page now. So go check it out. Uh, you know where to find us. Uh, you have our WhatsApp number as well. And definitely you can go and subscribe us on all the 15 podcasting platforms that we are present on. And of course, the episode that we have been talking about, we are going to be releasing the coming week. So stay tuned. And uh, I guess I have been watching a lot of films on Mubi India, uh, Mubi India specifically, and uh, one being Mirch Masala by Ketan Mehta. So go check it out. Uh, I don't, I'm not too sure if it's still there, but if it's still there, then you definitely can watch it. And I also happen to see a lot of Kubrick films that are streaming on Netflix, one being uh, Full Metal Jacket again. So go watch that and I'm going to end this with a Kubrick quote which is sitting right in front of me right now which is however worst the darkness we must supply our own light. Take care and stay well. <laughs>